Apuleius on the Doctrines of Plato by Apuleius. Translated by George Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Book One On Natural Philosophy. One. The conformation of his body gave to Plato his name, for he was previously called Aristocles. His father was said to have been Ariston, while his mother was Perictione, the daughter of Glaucus, and on both sides the nobility of his birth was sufficiently remarkable, for his father Ariston derived through Codrus his origin from Neptune, while the blood on his mother's side flowed from Solon, the very wise who was the founder of the laws of Athens. There are, however, those who assert that Plato sprang from a more exalted origin at the time when a certain vision in the form of Apollo had a connection with Perictione. He was born in the month called Thargalion at Athens, on the day in which Latona is reported to have brought forth Apollo and Diana at Delos, and on the day before that in which we have heard that Socrates was born. Mention is likewise made of the pretty dream that Socrates had, for he thought he saw a signet flying from an altar, which was in the academia, sacred to Cupid, and settling on his lap, and that afterwards a full-fledged swan, it directed its flight to heaven, entrancing the ears of men and gods with the music of its song. And, after Socrates had mentioned the dream to some persons, when they had come together, Ariston very opportunely attended upon Socrates, with the view of offering Plato to him as the youth's instructor, on whom, when Socrates had cast his eyes, and saw from his external appearance his internal disposition, he said, This, friends, is the swan from the altar of Cupid in the academy. 2. Such, and sprung from such, did Plato not only excel heroes in virtue, but he equaled likewise the gods in power. For Spusippus, who was furnished with family documents, praises the acuteness of the boy's talent in perception, and his disposition as regards his wonderful modesty, and he makes mention of the first fruits of his youth as being imbued with the proofs of labor and his love of study, and testifies that in the man there met together the growth of these and of other virtues. From the same parents were his brothers Glaucon and Adimantus. For his instructors he had in the rudiments of education Dionysius, and in the palestra Ariston, a native of Argos, and such a progress did practice bring with it that he contended for the wrestler's prize at the Pythian and Isthmian games nor did he disdain the painter's art. For tragic and dithyrambic compositions, likewise, he fitted himself, and, carried away by a confidence in his poetical powers, he was already desirous of professing himself a competitor, had not Socrates driven from his mind the lowness of the desire, and taken care to implant in his soul the glory that arises from true praise. And, even previously, he had been imbued with the doctrines of the sect of Heraclitus. But when he had given himself up to Socrates, he was superior to the rest of the disciples of Socrates, not only in genius and learning, but by labor likewise and elegance he shed a luster on the wisdom imparted to him by Socrates, 
by the labor through which he endeavored to make that wisdom his own, and by the elegance through which he contributed to it a considerable dignity from the beauty and majesty of his language. 3. But after Socrates had left the world, he sought out from whence he might make a further progress, and he betook himself to the discipline of Pythagoras, and, though he saw it possessed a method of diligence and splendor combined, he was still more desirous of imitating its continence and chastity. And, as he perceived that the talents of the Pythagoreans were aided by other kinds of learning, he went to Cyrene to learn geometry under Theodorus, and travelled even to Egypt to obtain a knowledge of astrology, and that he might learn from thence the rites of the prophets there. And a second time he went to Italy, and became a follower of the Pythagoreans, Eurytus of Tarentum and Archytus, who was rather advanced in years, and he would have directed his thoughts to the Indians and Magi, had not the wars in Asia at that time prevented him from proceeding thither, on which account, by following out with more than usual study the discoveries of Parmenides and Zeno, he so filled his treatises with things, taken unitedly, which singly had been an object of admiration, that he was the first to unite philosophy, previously tripartite, and to show that its parts, each necessary in its turn, were not only not at variance with each other, but that they afforded a mutual aid. For although the members of philosophy had been obtained from different factories, such as natural philosophy from the Heracliteans, mental from the Pythagoreans, and moral from the very fountain of Socrates, yet from them all he formed one body, and as it were of his own begetting. But as the chiefs of these families of philosophy had delivered to their auditors their sentiments in unpolished language and a rudimental form, Plato rendered them perfect, and even to be admired by polishing them up with reasonings, and investing them with the honorable dress of lofty diction. 4. Many of his hearers, belonging to either sex, flourished as philosophers. He left behind him his patrimony, consisting of a small garden adjoining the academy, and two slaves and a goblet, with which he made supplications to the gods, and of gold, so much as he had worn when a boy in his ear, to mark his noble birth. Some evil-disposed persons carp indeed at his three journeys to Sicily, and discuss them with opinions at variance with each other. But he went thither the first time for the sake of information, that he might understand the nature of Etna, and the burning of the hollow mountain. The second, at the request of Dionysius, to assist the people of Syracuse, and to learn the municipal laws of that province. His third arrival took place in the wish to restore Dion, then an exile, to his country, after Plato had obtained a pardon for him from Dionysius. Of his tenets, that might be called by the Greek word dogmata, which he promulgated for the beneficial use of man, and for a rational method of living, and understanding, and speaking, we will commence from hence. For, since he first held that the three parts of philosophy have an agreement with each other, we too will speak of each separately, beginning with natural philosophy. 5. Plato considers the principles of all things to be three, God, matter, and the forms of things, which he calls ideas, ideas, 
that are incomplete, shapeless, and distinguished by no mark of species and quality. But of God his sentiments are that he is incorporeal. He alone, says Plato, is a perimetrus, without a circumference, the father and adorner of all things, blessed himself, and the cause of blessings to others, the very best, in want of nothing himself, and conferring all things upon all, whom he calls the heavenly, the ineffable, the not-to-be-named, or, as he says himself, areton, akaton, omaston, whose nature it is difficult to discover, and if discovered it cannot be proclaimed to the many. But of matter he makes mention as unable to create and to be destroyed, and that it is neither fire, nor water, nor any other of the principles and positive elements, but that of all things it is the first recipient of forms, and subjective to the act of making, and being as yet shapeless and devoid of the quality of configuration, God, as the artificer, gives to it a form universal, which is infinite on that account, because it is a magnitude without a limit. For that which is infinite has the limit of magnitude undefined, and hence, when matter is deprived of limit, it can properly be seen as infinite. Nor yet does he concede that it is with a body, nor without a body. On that account he thinks it is not a body, because no body is free from some kind of form. Nor yet can he say that it is without a body, because nothing which is without a body can exhibit a body, but that it seems to be with a body by the force of reasoning, and it is therefore to be comprehended not by acting alone, nor yet by the opinion alone of thought. For bodies, through the remarkable evidence of themselves, are known by similar judgment, but that those things which do not possess a bodily substance are seen by cogitation, from whence, opinion being adulterated, the ambiguous quality of this matter is to be comprehended. 6. The ideae, namely the simple forms of all things, he says are eternal, nor yet with a body, but they exist from such as God has taken as the patterns of things which are or will be and he says it is not possible for anything to be found beyond the individual images in the patterns of each species, and that of all existing things the forms and configurations are marked out from the impression of those patterns in the manner of wax impressions. Usiae, which we call essentiae, existences, he says are twofold, through which all things are produced, and even the world itself one of which is perceived by reflection alone, the other can be subjective to the senses. Now that which is perceived by the eyes of the mind is found to exist for ever, and in the same manner, and equal, and similar to itself, and what truly is. But the other is to be estimated by opinion, affected by a sense and a want of reason, and which he says is produced and perishes and as the former is said to exist truly, so the latter, we may say, does not exist truly. And of the first substance or existence is the first, God, and matter, and the forms of things, and the living principle. Of the second substance are all the things which receive a form, 
and are generated, and derive their origin from a pattern of the former substance, and which are able to be changed and turned about, gliding away and escaping in the manner of flowing water. Moreover, since that substance of perception which I have mentioned rests upon a power that is consistent, the points that are made the subject of dispute relating to it are full of firm reasoning and belief. But of the latter, which is the shadow, as it were, and the image of the former, the reasonings and the words which are used in disputes relating to it are expressed by a method of teaching which is not consistent. 7. The beginning of all bodies he has stated to be matter, and that it is marked by the impressive forms, and that from hence have been produced the elements, fire and water, earth and air, which ought, if they are elements, to be simple, nor to be united by a mutual connection after the manner of syllables. What takes place in the case of those things, whose substance is made up by the coming together of powers in many ways, which, when they had been in no order and mixed together, were brought by the deity, who is the builder of the world, into order by means of numbers and measures in a circuit. These, he says, were reduced from very many elements into one, and that fire and air and water have their origin and beginning in a triangle which is right-angled, but with unequal angles, but that the earth is formed of direct angles, triangles, and of equal footsteps, and that of the former form three kinds exist, the pyramidal, the octangular, and twenty-angular, but that the sphere and pyramid have in themselves the figure of fire, and that the octangular sphere is dedicated to air, and the twenty-angular to water, but that the triangle with equal feet forms out of itself a square, and the square a cube which is peculiar to the earth. On which account he gave to fire the movable form of the pyramid, because the quickness of one seemed to be very similar to the rapid movement of the other but of secondary velocity is the octangular sphere. This he assigned to the air, which in lightness and quickness is the second after fire. The sphere, with twenty angles, is in the third place. Of this, the rolling form seemed to be rather like that of flowing water. There remains the form of dice, a cube, which, since it is immovable, has not absurdly obtained by lot the steadiness of the earth. Other beginnings, too, he says, might be discovered, which are known to God, or to him who is a friend of the gods. 8. But of the primary elements, fire and water and the rest, he asserts the slight bodies of things with life, and without it, consist in the shape of particles, but that the world, taken as a whole, is made up of the whole of water, and the whole of fire, and the whole of air and the whole of earth, and that not only no portion of these is left without the world, but that its power even is not found beyond it, and that these are fitted to and connected with each other within it, and consequently its seat is in fire, earth, water, and air, and as fire is united to air by a certain relationship, so moisture is united by an affinity to earth. Hence he says that there is one world, and in it all things, nor is there a place left in which another world could be, 
nor are there other elements remaining from which there could be formed the body of another world. Moreover, there is attributed to it a perpetual youth and a never-injured health, and further, there is nothing left out of it that can corrupt its natural condition, and if there remained anything out of the world it would not injure it, since it is on every side so put together and arranged that what is adverse and contrary cannot do an injury to its nature and discipline. On this account, then, it has been sought by the fabricating God in behalf of the world, which, like a beautiful and perfect sphere, is the most perfect and most beautiful, that it should be in want of nothing, and contain all things by shutting in and restraining them, and be beautiful and wonderful, like to and answering to himself. Now, since there are held to be the seven movements in space, the forward and backward, the right and the left, and of things that strive to move upwards and downwards, and of those that are twisted into a spiral and circuit. This one way, peculiar to wisdom and prudence, was left for the world, after the six former had been laid aside, that it should revolve according to reason. And this world, he says, is now with a beginning, but otherwise it has an origin, and was produced, for there is no beginning or commencement because it existed always, but that it seems to have been produced because its substance and nature consist of those things which have obtained by lot the quality of being produced. Hence it is tangible and visible and comes under the senses of the body, but because God has afforded a cause for its being produced, it is on that account about to be for ever of an immortal endurance. 9. But the soul of all living beings, he says, is incorporeal, nor will it perish when it shall have been released from the body, and that it is older than all things produced, and that it therefore has a command over, and rules those things of which it has obtained by law the diligent care, and that it is ever moved by itself, and is the mover of other things, which are by their nature unmoved and sluggish, and he proclaims that the heavenly soul, which is the fountain of all souls, and the best and wisest parent of virtues, is subservient to God the Maker, and is at hand for all his inventions, but that the substance of this mind is made up of numbers and measures, by means of increase doubled and multiplied, and of increments obtained from themselves and from without, and hence it happens that the world is moved according to a system of music, instrumental and vocal. He says, too, that the natures of things are twofold, and that one of them is that which can be seen by the eyes and touched by the hand, which he calls doxastin, the subject of opinion, and the other is that which presents itself to the mind, called dianoetike, the subject of cogitation and intellect, for let pardon be granted to a novelty in words that minister to the obscurity of things, and that the former portion is mutable and easy for a person beholding it, but that the latter, which is seen by the eye of mind, and is perceived and conceived by reflection that penetrates it, is incorruptible, immutable, enduring, and the same forever. Hence, twofold too, he says, is reasoning and interpretation. 
for the latter which is visible is inferred by a suspicion accidental and not so very enduring but the former which is intelligible is proved to be true by ratiocination perpetual and constant ten but time he says is an image of eternity although time is subject to motion while the nature of eternity is fixed and motionless and that time goes into it and can be ended and resolved into its magnitude if at any time god the maker of the world shall so determine and that by the spaces of the same time the measures of the revolution of the world are comprehended since the globes of the sun and moon do this and the rest of the stars which we do not correctly say are wandering and wandering for our opinions and disputations respecting their orbits may be led from the reality by an error of the understanding whereas the disposer of all things has so appointed their returnings risings settings recessions delays and progressions that there is no place left for even a moderate error since days with nights fill up the space of a month and months in their turn roll on the circle of a year nor was it possible for the numeration of time to be entered upon before those signs began to burn in the starry light and the keeping of this reckoning would have perished if this antique chorus had stood still of old for that the measures and returns of time might be known and the circuit of the world be seen the light of the sun was lit up and in turn the darkness of night invented that desired rest might come to living beings and a month was made up when the moon after completing the course of her circle returned to the same spot from which she had departed whereas the space of a year is completed when the sun shall have reached the four changes of the seasons and be carried back to the same sign the enumeration of those that return into themselves and of those that depart from themselves he discovered by the contemplation of the understanding and he says that there are nevertheless determinate revolutions of the stars preserved for ever in their legitimate courses which the skill of man can with difficulty comprehend from whence it happens that the so-called great year is known very easily the time of which will be filled up when the company of the wandering stars shall arrive at the same end and recover for itself a new commencement and a journey through the roads of the world eleven but of the celestial orbs united to each other by mutual changes the highest of all is that which is reckoned as the path of the non-wandering stars by whose embrace the rest are restrained and that to the non-wandering the first place was assigned the second to saturn the third to jupiter that mars holds the fourth that the fifth is assigned to mercury that the sixth belongs to venus and that the seventh is burnt up by the passage of the sun and that the moon measures the eighth hence he says that all things are occupied by elements and principles that fire is above all and next is the place of air that next is that of water and next that the orb of earth situated in the middle stands equal in place and immovable in figure he says too that these fires fixed to the spheres of the stars glide on in their courses perpetual and untired and that they are living gods 
but that the nature of the spheres is nourished by and made out of fire. Moreover, the races of living beings are divided into four species, one of which is of the nature of fire, of such a kind as we see the sun and moon to be, and the rest of the stars in the constellations. Another is of the quality of air, and this, he says, is that of diamonds. The third is a coalescence of water and earth, and that the mortal race of bodies is from this, and divided into the terrene and terrestrial, for so he considered the koika should be called, and that terrene belongs to trees and other productions, which drag out an existence while they are fixed to the ground, but terrestrial to things which the earth feeds and sustains. Of gods he enumerates three kinds, of which the first is that one and alone the highest, who is beyond the world and incorporeal, whom we have shown above to be the father and architect of this divine world. Another is such as the stars possess, and the rest of the deities, whom we call the heaven-inhabiting. The third embraces those whom the old Romans called medioxumi, because they are, with relation to themselves and place and power, inferior to the highest gods, but naturally superior to man. 12. But all things which are carried on naturally, and on that account correctly, are governed by the guardianship of providence. Nor can the cause of any evil be ascribed to God, on which account Plato conceives that not all things are to be referred to the lot of fate. For he gives this definition, that providence is a divine determination, the conservator of the prosperity of that for the sake of which it has undertaken such an office, and that fate is a divine law by which the inevitable designs of and the acts commenced by the deity are fulfilled. And hence, if anything is done by providence, it is done likewise by fate, and that which is finished by fate should seem to have been commenced by providence. Now, the first providence is that of the highest power, and the most above all the gods, who has ordained not only the deities that dwell in heaven, whom he has dispersed to be a guard and glory through all the members of the world, but has given birth, for ages upon ages, to the deities naturally mortal, who are superior in wisdom to the rest of beings that live upon earth, and, after laying down laws, he delivered over to the other deities the disposition and guardianship of the other matters which were necessary to be done daily. From whence, so strenuously did the deities of the second providence keep their hold of the providence undertaken by them, that all things which are shown to mortals from heaven preserve the state of the Father's arrangement unchanged. But the daimons, whom we might call genii and lares, Plato decides, are the servants of the gods, and the protectors of man, and their interpreters, should they wish for anything from the gods. Nor does he think that all things are to be referred to the force of fate, but that there is something in ourselves, and something too in fortune. He confesses, however, that the unforeseen accidents of fortune are not known to us, for that something unsteady and running against us is wont to come between the affairs which may have been undertaken with design and meditation, so that it does not permit what has been thought upon to come to an end. And when that impediment arrives advantageously, the circumstance is called good fortune. 
but misfortune when those hindrances are of a noxious kind. 13. Of all earthly things, nothing more excellent has providence given than man. Well, therefore, does the same Plato proclaim that the soul is the mistress of the body. But since he asserts that the parts of the soul are three, the reasoning power, which is the best portion of the mind, he says, has possession of the citadel of the head, but that the feeling of anger, which is distant from the reasoning power, is carried down to the domicile of the heart, and follows it, and in place answers to wisdom, and that lust and desire, the lowest portion of the mind, occupy the lowest seats of the belly, as if they were certain stews and hiding-places of jakes, the resorts of iniquity and luxury, and that this portion seems to have been removed at a greater distance from wisdom, lest by an unseasonable vicinity reason might, while consulting for the safety of all, be disturbed in the usefulness of its reflections. He says, too, that the whole of man is in the head and face, for prudence and all the senses are contained in no other part of the body but that, since the rest of the members act as handmaidens, and are subservient to the head, and minister food and other things, while the crown of the head is placed on high, as a lord and ruler, and by its providence to be delivered from dangers. Moreover, that the organs with which the senses are furnished for perceiving and judging of quantities and qualities are placed in like manner near the palace of the head within the view of reason, in order that the truth of understanding by the mind and perceiving by the body may be assisted. 14. But the senses themselves, being fitly formed by nature, have a cognate intelligence as regards those things which are the objects of sense. In the first place, the twin pupils of the eyes are very clear, and, shining with a certain light of vision, they possess the office of knowing light, while hearing, by partaking of the nature of air, has a perception of sounds through messengers in the air, whereas the taste, being a sense more relaxed, is on that account suited to things rather moist and watery, but the touch, as being of the earth and corporeal, perceives things that are rather solid, and which can be handled and struck against. Of those things, likewise, which are changed when corrupted, there is a separate perception, for in the middle region of the face nature has placed the nostrils, by the double doorway of which there passes an odour together with the breath, and that conversions and changes furnish the causes of smelling, and that they are perceived from substances when corrupted or burnt, or in a mucus or moistened state, when those substances are sought out, they are exhaled in vapour and smoke the judgment and sense of a smell come upon them. For if the substances are sound, and the air pure, they never vitiate the gales of that kind. Now, these very senses are common to us and the rest of animals, but by the divine blessing the skill of man in that way is better furnished and more advanced, since his hearing and sight are superior for he measures with his eyes the heavens and the orbits of the stars and the settings and risings of the constellations and he understands their distances together with the signs they give from which has flowed the most beautiful and plentiful fountain of philosophy and 
what could happen to man more magnificent than the sense of hearing, by which he learns simultaneously prudence and wisdom, and measures, and makes the numbers and modes of speech and melody, and becomes himself entirely attuned and musical. To this has been added the tongue, and the outwork of the teeth, and the beauty of a little mouth, which has been furnished to other animals indeed, for supplying the necessities of living, and bringing to the belly its resources. But to man this has been given as the storehouse of right reasoning, and of sweetest discourse, in order that what forethought has conceived in the heart, speech might bring forward to be understood. 15. Moreover, the bearing of the whole body and the form of the limbs are under one condition the best, but under another worse. The inferior are ruled by the superiority of the chiefs, and they perform the ministering suited for living. Finally, the feet, as far as the shoulders obey the head, but the hedge of the eyebrows protects the eyes, lest anything should rush down from above to disturb vision, which is tender and soft. The lungs, by their place and affinity, look very much to the welfare of the heart, for when it burns with anger, and is palpitating with rather quick movements, the top of the heart itself, wet with blood, is received by the softness and thirst, and cold of the lungs. But the spleen is near, and not vainly so, to the liver, that it may relieve its redundance by sharing in its absorptions, and by cleansing what is filthy, render the liver pure and clear, which is very advantageous to its fibres. He says, too, that the belly is furnished with the folds of the intestines, but that there is an impediment by ligatures, so that what is eaten and drank may not pass through the place of sitting quickly, but by being retained for a little time they may show their utility to animals by their approach, and that the necessity of desiring food may not be impending at every moment through those things being exhausted and passing off which had been introduced, and that there may not be a need for us to be occupied night and day for this purpose alone. 16. Moreover, the bones are covered with flesh, and the same are bound to nerves. Yet, nevertheless, the members, which are the intermediate messengers of feeling, are hidden by flesh, in order that the sensations may not be blunted by the thickness of the flesh. Those, too, that are connected by joinings and couplings for a rapidity in moving themselves easily, are not impeded by much flesh. Lastly, look at the top of the head itself, and you will see it covered with a thin skin, and shaggy with hair, a protection against the violence of cold and heat. But those parts are plump, which labor wears down, as, for instance, the buttocks themselves, where is the region of sitting. What shall I say of the food, which the roads that emanate from the womb, and are joined to the fibres of the liver, disperse, after being turned into the form of blood, so that nature may skilfully cause it to flow, like a river, from that place through all the joints? but from the region of the heart the meanderings of the veins take their rise, transferring through the coils of the lungs the liveliness which they had received from the heart, and, being again distributed from that place through the whole limbs, they assist the whole man by his breathing. From hence the alternations in breathing are drawn and given back in turn, in order that they may not be impeded by their mutual meetings. 
the qualities, too, of the veins are various, which it is well known flow for the purpose of procreation from the region of the neck through the marrow of the loins, and are received into the place of the male organ, and again that Venus excites the productive receptacle of seed, so that his power departs from a man. 17. But when he says that the substances of the whole body are various, he means that the first seem to consist of fire and water, and the other elements, the second of similar particles of the intestines, small bones, blood, and the rest of substances, the third of members discordant and various, that is of head, belly, and unequal joints. From whence the substance which consists of simple elements, if that which by the necessity of living is asked for, in what manner it agrees, even with the genus of each, guards the quality and temperature of the body, and increases the strength for those particles which consist of the like, and of those which we have said above are unlike to each other, it nourishes the beauty, and at the same time that equality of dry, moist, hot and cold gives health, strength, and form, just as an intemperate and immoderate permixture, while particles are individually and universally corrupted, destroys a living being with a rapid dissolution. 18. The same philosopher says that the soul is tripartite, for that one part is rational, another hot with anger or irritable, the third we may call a longing, and give to the same feeling the name of lustfulness, but that healthiness and strength and beauty are then present to a being with soul, when reason rules it wholly, and passion and pleasure, two inferior parts are obedient to reason, and agreeing amongst themselves, long for nothing, and make no stir that reason deems to be useless. Now, when the parts of the soul are regulated to an equability of that kind, the body is broken down by no disturbance, otherwise it introduces a sickness, and unhealthiness, and foulness, when the parts are, with respect to each other, not well put together, and unequal, as when desire subdues anger, and good counsel, and brings them into subjection with itself, or when anger, more hot than usual, overcomes reason, the mistress and queen, while desire is obsequious and appeased. But the sickness of the mind, he says, is a folly, and he divides it into two parts. One of these he calls unskillfulness, the other madness, and he says that the disease of unskillfulness takes place from a vainglorious boasting, when a person falsely lays claim to the learning and knowledge of those things, of which he is ignorant, but that madness is wont to arise from very depraved habits and a lustful life, and that this madness, which a vicious quality of body produces, is called so, when those things which are prepared by reason in the top of the head become contracted by inopportune straits, but that a man is then perfect when soul and body are united together, and agree with and respond to each other, so that the firmness of mind be not inferior to the very strong powers of the body. The body, however, is increased then by natural increments, when the portion of good health, being attended to with skilful art, knows not to exceed the measure of necessary living, and when health is not worn down by the greatness of external labors, 
nor by the weight of food introduced too immoderately, or not digested and distributed through the body as it should be. For then the joints and limbs retain the measure and force of due vigor when that which is introduced for the preservation of the whole body is distributed to all the parts, as it were in equal proportions for each. But when that takes place in the least degree, then ensues the destruction of the body. End of section 18 and end of book 1